Hello, you are listening to Things of Interest. I'm Serena Chen. And I'm Sophia France. Today, the pay gap. Woo! Or not woo. <laughs> so, what I kind of want to do is break this conversation up into two parts. The first being the nature of the pay gap. So it's different drivers and factors, both internal, which is like looking at our gender, race, sexuality, and even illnesses that come up or are chronic. And also external factors, like whether one would choose to bear a child or, or to do more chores around the house and what the job requires of us and stuff like that. I really want to look into like how it manifests and how it's also changed in different industries over time. The second part that would be cool to cover is the different strategies we, both as individuals and as communities, can take to lessen this gap. <laughs> know if we'll ever solve it, but we can take steps into making it smaller. The pro tip and the sneak preview of what we're going to talk about in that is if you're an individual who pays people, pay men and women the same. You, you'd think people would realise that. <laughs> this, is my, this is my pro tip to fixing the gender gap. Pay them the same. And we're done. <laughs> Episode wrap. We're out. We're out. <laughs> Um, something I feel like I should mention at the start is that it's pretty clear that both Sophia and I agree that the pay gap exists. <laughs> um, and I have a little doubt that if you're listening to this podcast, you probably also agree that there exists a pay gap. But I think it's important for us to note that a significant amount of people, and a significant amount of women in fact, either don't believe the pay gap is real or don't think it's bad enough to warrant attention. Or they think it's justified. Yeah. So before we go into the nitty-gritty deep dive stuff, I thought it'd be nice and efficient to get all these like common arguments that people have against the existence of a pay gap just out of the way. So uh, we made a small list of common things that pop up. And we're going to just play some pet gap bingo, essentially. <laughs> How does that sound? That sounds pretty great. Alright, um, I think it's especially good because Safira is a seasoned debater, and so I think you'll be able to craft really lucid arguments against these, like, what is essentially, like, not very good arguments. A common one that I hear all the time is that you know, people see the statistics and they see how there is a gender pay gap and more specifically there's also racial differences as well and you know the list goes on and people look at those statistics and they say well you know men and women aren't doing the same jobs and therefore we shouldn't consider these statistics. Um, we can probably like combine a few of the like general the statistics are bad comments together because like that's something I hear a lot is they're like well the way it's calculated is actually like just just really bad and it doesn't really count and the reason that women's wages are less is that they do things like take more time off or work more part-time jobs both like the part-time jobs things is true like comparatively more women than men work part-time jobs and like that's legit but that doesn't mean that the wage gap stats are wrong because the wage gap statistics compare like to like so um and the Workplace Gender Equality Agency in Australia has some really, really nice um, 
uh, infographics and actual like numbers for this as well and that you can look at it and compare even within an industry and see that women are getting consistently paid less for the same amount of work for the same quality of work at the same levels as men and so it's like you know you can say like women and men don't do the same jobs but the fact is like even when they do and even when there are more women in a workplace than men women are still getting paid less absolutely and it seems that when people make that argument they tend to take it to the next level so no matter what kind of statistic no matter how granular your comparison already is they say that's not good enough you have to you know be more exact is Alice and Bob really doing the same job Uh, is their quality of work really the same and that becomes unhelpful because if you take it that far what you're essentially doing is controlling for the variable that you're trying to find (laughs) so if you if you control for x you're not going to find a difference in x right it's just general statistics so that's what really annoys me about that that and the fact that when you nail it down by industry as you say like the differences are there there's also some really nice statistics that have been done looking at um different so you can get a whole chunk of data, right? And that can have a lot of different variables. Like if you took data on my earning capacity, which would be meaningless, um, you could say I'm a woman, I'm age 24, like I have a chronic illness. Like those are things that might be why I get paid less than a dude, right? Like not that I am. I get paid very little, but I know that I get paid the same amount as everyone else at my level, which is the only time in my life this will be true. So that's fun. Um And if you get a lot of that data, you can then stratify the data and work out what variables are consistently associated with being paid less. And there was a really, really nice study done back in 2008, um, I believe in Australia. I think I linked it to you. It was called the Our Work, Our Lives. Um, Oh, it was in 2010 and it was presented at a conference and the beautiful results of the study are online. And when they find the determinants for the study, they find that 60% of a determinant for the gender wage gap is just being a woman. Absolutely. What I, um, what I would really like to know, because I see the extreme variant of this uh, argument come up a lot as well, is that someone will say, hey, if you actually, you know, look at it the right way, men are actually paid less. Where are they getting that from? What? I do not, (laughs) I do not know. And like, people have come at me with this argument as well. And they're like, oh, well, actually, like, if you do the statistics, and it's like, mate, I can cherry pick all Mm. I like as well, right? But the problem is that we're looking at a data set, when you look at the Ministry for Women in New Zealand, when you look at the Workplace Gender Equality Agency in Australia, they have literally a nationwide data set. And so, like, you can look at a particular small business, you can look at a particular workplace, sure, and maybe in a workplace with, like, five people where four of them are women and the dude is, like, the most recent employee, like, he gets paid less than the women, But if you look at it at a nationwide perspective, even if you look within industries, you're still consistently getting women being paid less than men. And there was a really nice study done that was presented um, at the Our Work, Our Lives conference in 2010. And this can be found online and we'll put a link to it in the show notes. And that like, see, I just, I have to say it again, right? The people that do the statistics are actually Mm. good at statistics, right? And so they can get this nationwide data set, this huge, this 
gorgeous data set, which I would literally kill to have because <laughs> it looks so good. Um, where they can like determine determinants of a wage gap. And so they look at like everything that might be causing women to be being paid less than men. And they say, how much does this contribute to being paid less? Like, are there other things that might be causing it? Is there something like industry segregation or wanting to take time off? Or maybe, like, women work within small businesses more. And they did this, and they found that being a woman contributes 60% of the gender wage gap. And certainly, like, things like industry segregation contribute an amount. So industry segregation is, like, you have more women nurses and more men minors, right? Like, men work with men, women work with women, and then we devalue women's work overall, which is, like, mm. a broader societal problem, but, like, not necessarily the wage gap itself. And, like, that contributes a bit as well, but by far the majority is just, like, being a woman, identifying as a woman, means you get paid less. Yeah. Um, and we can go into the the details of it more later on as well because it's really fascinating to see all of the different things that contribute to the gender wage gap and I think that they'll give us some practical strategies to try and lessen that gap. And also just like, oh, one of the things that really bugs me is like you hear these people who talk about how like men are actually being oppressed these days. <laughs> one of the things they point to are like more women are getting like entering university and getting qualifications than men. Yeah. And somehow we're still getting paid less. Like, what? Yeah, women are what? consistently doing better at school as well. Not just showing up, not just participating more, but actually doing better than their male counterparts in schools all the way up to and throughout university. All right, next one, next one. <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. Next up on Pegak Bingo. Another thing that I hear all the time is that, hey, if women don't want to be paid less, we should just go get a higher paying job. I actually remember um, a really, when I was in like high school, there was a nurse's strike, I think in 2008 or 2009. Mm. Um, and I remember a quote from, God, it would it have been John Key? I have no idea. Anyway, I, it, was, it was some dude in government who said, well... The reason that there's, like, a gender pay gap and the re is because, like, there's been a freeze on wages in nursing things. And surely if people didn't want to be paid not very much, they wouldn't be nurses. Sort of, like, heavily implying that the nurses shouldn't be striking for, like, fair wages. Because, like, if they wanted to get paid money, they wouldn't have become nurses. It's just, like, it's nurses literally run hospitals, my dude. Can you, like, chill and just pay them some money? Yeah, it's an incredibly, incredibly frustrating argument. Because it's like, it's the whole uh, quote-unquote free market neoliberal argument, right? Like, if, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we give payment as incentives, and if people don't go for them, well, then they just, might, they just must not want that. Which is just the most unnuanced, empty argument I've ever heard, because there are more things that contribute to your decision about your career than just how much do I get paid? In fact, how much do I get paid is so far down the list. But also, like, the lack of knowledge about what other people are getting paid, and this is something that um, relatively recently, so in the last couple of years, has been a big thing in Silicon Valley, where, like, someone, I think, essentially, like, outed the wages of a bunch of people at Google, and the women were like, hold on, <laughs> what do you mean we're all getting paid less? Yeah. And this, this is a, a, a thing that is good for all employees as well, regardless of gender, is to share your 
your salary, essentially. In, in our society, there's like a taboo around sharing how much money you make, right? And that, that gives the upper hand to your employer because your employer doesn't want you to know how much everyone else is making. They're using that, that asymmetry of, of information, of knowledge, to basically have the upper hand in negotiations. So if you don't know how much you know, your peers are making, then you can't argue for a higher salary. So I'd, I'd encourage everyone, like, no matter your gender, to, to share your salary with your workmates. Um, trust me, they won't be mad at you. They'll, they'll be mad at their boss. So yeah. <laughs> it's good Most for everyone. Definitely. Another thing that really bugs me about the whole if women wanted higher-paying jobs, we should just move into higher-paying careers, is that we've, we've seen that happen. We've seen women moving into and out of different industries, and we've seen the average pay and general like respect and reverence for that industry go up and down. And I should point out that this is a correlation, not causation, but it is interesting to note that... Back in the day, women were computer scientists. Making computers work, doing the act of computing was a woman's job, and that was looked on as not a very good job. It wasn't something that was desirable, and it wasn't something that was paid well, and it wasn't until women were essentially uh, systemically pushed out of the industry and men started going in did that job become very desirable and very well paid. Until now, which in which, of course, computer science jobs are extremely well-paid. And you, you see that a lot. I think you see that in the, um, the field of biology as well. It used to be a very much male-dominated area. And, I mean, you could speak to this much much better than I oh, can. Yeah, most definitely. Um, so biology is seen as, like, the weakest and the shittest science. And, like, I take great umbrage with this because I have to do a buttload of maths every single day. <laughs> um and that's partly because it's mostly women. And the wonderful thing about biology is, like, mm. I work at a workplace that is sort of two-thirds women most years. Like, And the best thing about biology is it is, you know, two-thirds, three-quarters women, and everyone who's respected in the field is a dude. Isn't that interesting? That's just, like, super weird. <laughs> well, it, it feels weird, but it's actually incredibly common. Like, if you look at, like... Fashion design is, you know, if you were to gender that, it would be more oriented towards women. But the people leading fashion design in the industry are men. When you look at, I mean, cooking is seen as women's work, but when you look at all the head chefs of the best restaurants in the world, they're mostly men. So we see this a lot, and it is incredibly frustrating because it's not, it's not even the fact that we gender some things as to being more like women's work or men's work. It's that even in the field where the work is gendered as quote-unquote women's work, men are the ones who are leading yeah. that field, and men are the ones who are at the head. Essentially, even in the fields where we're allowed to exist, men are the ones who are running it. And there's a phenomenon, I think it's called like the glass escalator or something, which is the opposite of the glass mm -hmm. ceiling, which is when a dude enters a female-dominated workplace he'll just kind of get fast-tracked to the top. And that's seen in nursing quite a bit, is that male nurses will get paid more and they'll get promoted and they'll get, like, kind of just pushed up the ranks. And it's like, sure, you might be sad if you're in a female-dominated workplace and you identify as male. That might be tough for you occasionally. But you also get a fast-track to promotion. Mm. So, eh, my sympathy is limited. <laughs> <laughs> I like the next one. I've heard the next one a lot. 
the essentially the idea that an employer is right to choose to pay women less because they might take maternity leave, they take more time off, oh. or they might have to do childcare. Essentially, they're a risk to an employer because women, well, we just sometimes get pregnant. It just it just happens, you know, those days where you're like cooking dinner and then oh, you what? think, oh no, I'm I'm incubating a baby. How did this happen to me? I I no longer can be productive. <laughs> Oh, I, um... <laughs> I can no longer produce things for my capitalist society. I, uh, this... I hate this argument so much. <laughs> I hate it so much. Something I found quite interesting. So I have taken time to talk to a lot of queer female scientists, particularly ones with kids. And this is because, as a queer female scientist, I know so much about how raising a family as a heterosexual woman works. Because, like, every second talk we get about women in science, they're like, and this is how we navigated children. And it's like, cool. What if I'm dating a woman? Like, what what do we what do we do here? And like I just no one has any idea. So I went out of my way to go and talk to a few different people. And I think one of my big questions was like, kind of at what point do you tell your employer that you might be planning a family because like in a couple that's two women most of the time you can't be like well it just it accidentally happened we we're having sex one day mm. and I got impregnated how did that how did that occur <laughs> like you know there are circumstances when you're in a same-sex relationship where that can occur most of the time it kind of won't like and mm. so I asked her this and she kind of looked at me and she was like it's not their goddamn business like it's not your employer like you don't tell your employer whether you want to have kids or not like they have to make a decision based on how good a worker they think you are and that will maintain whether or not you have a child like you'll still be good at your job if you're pregnant <laughs> hmm. I think there's a bigger problem with this argument in that we're looking at essentially punishing usually women because you know women take on the vast majority of caregiving, childbearing, and domestic duties. But we're looking at it the wrong way. We're looking at it and saying, okay, it's the employer's decision, you know. The employer has the right to make a decision about their employees, etc., etc. But what we should really be looking at is it's a, it's a societal problem in which we expect women to do most of the work. Yeah. I mean, people with uteruses who in their two-partner relationship might be the one carrying the child. Sure, that's a that's a nine-month thing that, you know, is happening to your body. But then after that, there's a lot of caring duties that your second partner should be taking on as well. And that's something that we just don't expect of men, and we expect, well, the majority or all of it from women. And we don't expect it to men to the extent where it's actually quite difficult for men to get, like... The ability to mm. leave work early to do childcare pickup or to take time off around the birth of their child or to take time off if their kid is sick. And, like, I think that's, exactly. that's genuinely one of the huge things we have to look at when looking at making, like, the workplace a more equal place is saying, okay, so on the one hand, we shouldn't expect women to do all of this, but on the other hand, we now need to expect men to do some of it. Absolutely. And the, the question we should be asking is, what are employers losing when they subject the people who choose to have a family to bear a child, when they subject them to different treatment to assume that 
that that's the end of their career essentially that they're going to be not productive for what nine months to a year what are they losing and what are they losing by not spreading that responsibility out not saying to their male employees oh you're planning to have a family that's awesome here's some time off like what essentially it's the employers themselves who at the end of the day lose out and they lose out by unfairly targeting those who want to start a family. And I think this also feeds into our other harmful ideas surrounding work. So the idea that you're more productive if you stay at work for longer, if you're working like 10 or 12 hour days, you're a really good employee. The idea that employees should always be accessible by the boss. And it's like, well, no, like there's been a bunch of studies that say that you're most productive in the first six hours you have at work. Like Mm. that, like the, what is it? The French model of having like four day weeks, like that mm. works really oh not four day weeks like 60 hour weeks or something like that like that works really well they're just as productive mm. but because we have these ideas particularly in western society particularly in like the anglosphere that like you need to be working long days you need to be constantly accessible you need to be doing like xyz and the time you put in is more important than the productivity that results coming out of that hmm um, this reminds me of, a, and I know I'm like getting into like the more nitty gritty part of this, but this reminds me of a study, I think uh, Sarah Clifford Vox wrote about the study done on MBAs uh, and the gender wage gap, and basically looking at how the wage gap changes over the course of one's career. And when these MBAs, they get out of school, they start out, there is a pay gap, but it's it's not very large. Women earned an average salary of uh, 115 straight out of graduate school, while men earned 130. It's like, okay, it's bad, but not, you know, too bad. And then as you look at how this progresses throughout time, when you look at these the same cohort nine years out of business school, suddenly the wage gap has increased to 60%. The women's salaries rise to an average of 250k, while men's were at a whopping 400k. And what this article details is the argument that a big factor that contributes to unequal pay is essentially non-flexible working times. And they did this by looking at pharmacies. Um, back in the day, pharmacies were run by like your local pharmacist kind of thing. And they had to be open for a specific amount of hours. And if they weren't open, they wouldn't have business. So the hours are extremely rigid and the gender pay gap in that industry was significant. Uh, Over time, the pharmacies became chains or they'd move into supermarkets and people could take and give shifts when they could. When the hours became more flexible, you saw that gender pay gap shrink. And so the argument is that a big contributor to the pay gap is essentially inflexible times. And it doesn't seem like something that's very hard to implement. When you look at the studies of how productive people are, the ones that you mentioned, there really isn't a big correlation between you're at the office a long time and therefore you're more productive. There, there really isn't that correlation. So it does seem like a, like a pretty solid strategy to implement to shrink that wage gap. And it's definitely something we've sort of... I'm getting a bit hit No, of no, it's really good. Like, it's definitely something we've touched on before, this idea that, like, flexible work essentially, like, is easy, right? Like, you can, because of computers, because of, like, remote offices, like, you can work whenever you can find work. And, like, my cousin who has a 
two and a half year old and another one on the way like she has a virtual assistant thing set up and one of the bonuses that she sets out in that is like i have like a child i'm about to have two i'll be awake at night and like needing to get stuff done while i rock a baby to sleep right like and having something to like Mm. i will have that time to do your work for you to be your virtual assistant like you can give me work at 5 p.m. and it'll be done at 9 in the morning without any change to my day because, like, mm. I'm just awake at 3 a.m. because the baby has decided that's party time. <laughs> like, she puts it nicer in her actual ads, but, like, that's that's such a good way to do work, right? Mm. Like, to just, when you have a day that's getting messed up by something, like, to fit your work in around that, to, like, make it so you don't go absolutely crazy from, like, being awake and getting no sleep for, you know, the next 18 years. Like, that's really, really good. <laughs> and to kind of cut people out of that, I think, like, does a lot of harm to basically our economy, right? But also to, like, the people within it. Essentially, yeah. All right, next, next bingo. Next bingo. We keep <laughs> solving these problems too much. Oh, here's a good one. Here's a classic. Uh, laws exist. We have the Equal Pay Act of 1972. Uh, I'm not sure what legislation is in Australia. Uh, there's, there's some legislation that says you can't do that. <laughs> but anyway, um, the argument is that laws exist to say that we can't discriminate against gender. Therefore, it doesn't happen. It can't happen. There's a law for that. Look, this just makes me think of the fact that, like, there's that little Club Penguin meme that's like, 911, what's your emergency? <laughs> What do you mean you're being murdered? That's illegal. <laughs> right? People can't do that. Wait. Here's something that I learned only a few days ago. So we have the Equal Pay Act of 1972 that mandates if work or a class of work requires the same or like similar degrees of skill, effort and responsibility, you can't pay your male and female employees different rates. And the thing that I, I learned the other day is that that has not been enforced. Yeah, has <laughs> never been, yeah. Which is mind-blowing. There's also the, um, yeah, the 1993 Human Rights Act, um, which expressly prohibits discrimination on, like, a bunch of grounds, and one of those is sex. So it's, like, cool, illegal in many different ways, still happens. So essentially our <laughs> response to that argument is, no, just because it's illegal doesn't mean people don't do it. And in fact, just because it's illegal doesn't mean that people even get in trouble for doing it. I will try and find what the thing in Australia is. There we go. Okay, so um, in Australia we have the Commonwealth Affirmative Action Equal Employment Opportunity for Women Act 1986. And then that kind of, you know, has progressed and very little has been done about it, as you can tell, because... The wage gap in Australia, depending on how you calculate it, is either uh, 17.21% or 23.1%. So that's great. Both of those numbers are much, much larger than the New Zealand pay gap, which um, is 12% if you calculate it in a way that includes part-time work, which makes sense because like a lot of women work in part-time jobs, or if you only calculate it from full-time work, it's 5.6%. So, I'm so glad I moved to this country. It's not garbage at all. <laughs> has, has that gap actually grown over the past few years? It, like, oscillates in Australia. So, um, I think the lowest it was re- in recent years 
I will find the actual number so I'm not lying. So in 2005, it was 15.1. Um, and it kind of like bounces between like 15-ish and 17-ish percent. Um, the Workplace Gender Equality Agency, I think, does the calculation that's like slightly less nice about the wage gap. So you can make, take numbers and do like conservative or less conservative um, estimates about what that gap is. Um, the 15 to 17% is a quite conservative um, estimate, the lo- like the lower end of what the actual wage gap is likely to be. The Workplace mm. Gender Equality Agency is a less conservative estimate, um, and that's the 23.1% in 2016 that they have. Um, and similarly, like New Zealand, uh, the 12%, and this is all explained on the Ministry for Women um, thing for New Zealand, 12% is the way that the Ministry of Statistics recommends calculating it, including part-time work and being, like, less conservative. So the commentary is, like, it's more likely closer to, like, the actual wage gap, um, whereas 5.6% is the difference for men and women in full-time work. And this is, like, this conflates race in both of those instances, um, in all of those incidences, I should say, rather. Um, mm-hmm. And that's kind of an issue because one of the big things with the gender pay gap is, like, Often the number that's quoted is the gender pay gap between like white men and white women. Yeah. Um. In the New Zealand statistics, it's all conflated, and like fifteen percent of our population is Maori and Pacifica. But again, like kind of if you look at it, like done by race, uh, which I haven't got a tab open for that currently, so I can't spout you numbers like they're <laughs> off the top of my head. But the wage gap between like white men and Pacifica women will be greater than the wage gap between white men and white women. Incidentally, uh, pay, paying Pacifica and Māori people less than you would pay a white employee is also prohibited under that Human Rights Act in New Zealand. So um, if you're an employer, don't do it. Essentially, yeah. I think looking at all of these different contributions, like looking at not only how gender contributes to this pay gap, but how race contributes to it, how sexuality might contribute to it, how like chronic illness might contribute to it, the, the more granular we can get with knowing where the gap comes from the more equipped we are to actually deal with it because if we know that we pay Māori and Pacifica women so much less if we know the gap is so much wider than the gap between white women and white men then we know to focus more of our efforts on that and to like we we know where to target essentially the more granular we can get and that's not helped by just saying hey there's a law for it therefore we're fine (laughs) It's a hard problem. Oh, I mean, like, you say that it's a hard problem. It's a hard problem to enact changes, like, on a meaningful level Mm. about. Like, as I sort of alluded to in our introduction, I think it's a really easy problem. Mm. You pay everyone the same rate. Like... Yeah. Yeah, it's just the... Like, the solution is straightforward, but the implementation and driving that change forward and convincing people... Because, again, like... We're talking to each other here, we have our listeners, um, and I'm sure we're all on the same wavelength in that, you know, we believe that this is a problem. But there is a vastly significant amount of people who are employers, who are those in power, who set these pay bans and set these wages, who don't believe that this is a problem. And so while, while I think the solution is very straightforward, as you say, half of our effort will need to be put into... A, convincing people that they're, they're losing profits, they're losing productivity, and they're losing out by 
not considering this very large problem, and B, giving them good, uh, straightforward and common sense ways to really implement how one would see this change in a large organisation. I guess I'm talking from like the perspective of working at quite a large corporate company and knowing that there's so much red tape and bureaucracy around that and there's no office politics and I mean I don't know what my colleagues make so I, I really have no idea how to even start that conversation from the ground up. And maybe this is a good segue to move on to talking about what things that we as individuals might be able to do to fight for lessening this pay gap and what things need to happen on a more communal level. Yeah, before we do that, I do want to touch briefly on one final thing, which I didn't know should exist in bingo until I had someone literally say it to me and then make a very big argument about how, like, if the wage gap existed, surely women would get a lot more jobs than men because the free market exists. Ah, the free market. And this this was an argument made to me by someone who I believe is, like, like, I believe they're a qualified doctor now. Oh. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so... So that was really fun. Like, and essentially the idea... Like, the idea he put forward was, you know, firstly, women should only work for jobs that pay them the same as men, which, if you look at any data set ever, mm. there are none. Secondly, that... If this is true, under the contention that women are getting paid less than men, surely employers would always preferentially hire women because they always want to save money. To which my response was, yes, but that's assuming you're living in a world that doesn't have pervasive and sexism just literally everywhere, in everything, and touching everything we are. That's incredible. Has he met an employer? I'm, I'm guessing this is a dude. Yeah, yeah, no, he, he has an employer, like, he, he lives his life, he's just like, but if women get paid less, surely everyone would hire them. And it's like, not quite, mate. This is, this is something I think. How that works. Yeah, well, that's, it's pretty, it's pretty fucking ridiculous. I needed to share that with you. I think this is something that people, uh, it's a myth when people say that a salary, what someone is paid, is the most important thing about a job. Because when it comes down to it, it's really it's really quite far down the list. Like when yeah. when you go out and you hire people, the first thing you ask them is not how much money do you want. That stuff is almost irrelevant at the start. That stuff is is the the footnote at the bottom of a very long conversation about their skills, their talents, their experience, what kind of person they are, what they would be like to work with. All of that stuff is way, 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 way more important than pay. And so to assume that employers are going around thinking, I have this much budget, therefore I want to hire as many people as possible and not even like think about who they are, what they might bring to the table and just think about, you know, how many people can I hire for this budget? Oh, we pay women less, therefore we're going to hire all women. That, that's nonsensical. It's nonsensical to the point where I don't even know how to respond to that. How can I optimize <laughs> yeah. my equation to fill my business with people? <laughs> makes no sense. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. Your friend must be must be fun at parties. <laughs> all right. All so we've heard yeah. all about now we can move sort on. of criticisms that we hear about the pay gap and the questions of whether the pay gap is real or even if it's that big a problem. And we've thoroughly trounced all of those, I'd like to think. So essentially, what can we do to fix this is the next problem. And 
Initially, I kind of want to talk about the idea and the sort of common response, and this also falls under the total myths category, also known as the bullshit awards, um, <laughs> which is this idea that women should just ask to be paid more. Do you hear this much, Serena? I hear it all the time, and I think to some degree it's a good idea, depending on your situation and like your relationship with your employer. In some cases it's a good idea, but studies say otherwise. There have actually been um quite a few studies done, uh, and certainly like I agree with that, like every situation is relative. Like if you have a really good relationship with your employer where you can be like, mate, just pay me more. I do such good work. Oh my God. Like that's really, really valuable. In the vast majority of situations, women who ask to be paid for, women who negotiate their salary at a job interview, which apparently is something that men just do all the time because like no one ever taught boys manners. Um, (laughs) And like, I, I know that's entirely false, but essentially this idea that we don't negotiate our pay certainly comes down to the idea that like we're meant to be nice and dainty and when women do negotiate and when women do ask for promotions or pay rises they're often seen as being too aggressive they're seen seen as being like dominant and like just all those bad things like that are actually compliments when you say them to men you know yeah i'm curious have you have you tried to negotiate before because i haven't and i I, I have never had a job where I have the capacity to negotiate. (laughs) Mm. I had no idea that I could even, or I had no idea that it was even expected of me to negotiate. Like, I guess this is my, like, first real job, so... In fact, I did, like, the opposite of negotiate in that I... When I was asked for an, a number, when I was asked for, like, what salary I should expect, I had no idea what to expect, so I did a quick Google... And I just, like, replied with the the first answer that I saw. And my now boss <laughs> replied in the email saying, um, we can actually offer you a bit more. <laughs> like, that's how bad my negotiation skills were. <laughs> oh, so gosh. now, like, when whenever I um, hear about, like, friends getting offers for new jobs and, and whatnot, I always tell them to negotiate. I'm just like... Did you know you can negotiate? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, I didn't know that. It's it's a tricky thing though, right? Because like, Mm -hmm. even if in a circumstance you're almost expected to negotiate, negotiating too hard as a woman means you'll be seen as aggressive. And like, I think this kind of compounds, particularly if you're a woman of color, because there's a lot of like stereotypes about race. So like, you'll probably get painted as aggressive, like, particularly if you're a black woman, for example, because that's, like, a racial stereotype that's really shitty and gross. And so, like, I have a lot of concerns when it comes to, like, negotiating for pay. And, like, certainly we have, like, pay bans at places like the University of Melbourne. There's, like, band A, band B, band C, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And you enter into that and you earn between two numbers as your salary for full-time work. And so if you work four days, you earn slightly less than that. Um... And it's really fun because even within those bands, women get paid less. Mm. And I just, I find that so incredibly frustrating to read about and to hear about and to see happening. Is it because, like, every possible barrier to, like, gender equity, aside from just, like, literally dictating what a particular person get paid for their skills, has been removed. And still women are getting paid less. And it's like, cool, cool and great. 
Yeah, it's it's incredibly frustrating because even as I'm sitting here, I'm thinking about all of the um, the tips that I have read have been offered by other people, like how you might approach a pay a salary negotiation how you should set goals for yourself and then accomplish those goals and use that as evidence that you need more pay kind of thing. All of those tips and stuff to get you to be a better negotiator. But even though that's helpful, question mark, it still puts the onus on us, the women, the marginalised groups. It puts the, the responsibility on us to fight against a system that its default state is just you're not meant to have these things. So I kind of almost don't want to talk about those those tips that I have seen floating around because it really should be on the employers and how they look at, you know, how they do performance reviews and how they do salary negotiations and how they value their employers. And which is hard because it's like most of us are not employers, right? Most of us are yeah. either employees um, or looking to be an employee. And certainly, like, for people listening to this who are maybe going into the workforce soon or, like, looking for new jobs, like, I'm sorry that our kind of, like, solution to the pay gap on a personal level is, ah, do your best. (laughs) Like, get a rapport going with your employer and then get them to pay you more probably. Like, so I'm, I'm sorry that that's kind of where we're at, like, where me and Serena are at, but I think it's a minefield when you, like, go into this idea that it's like, well, you could negotiate for your salary, but then you run the risk of being seen as aggressive and demanding and bossy or neurotic or this or that. And, Mm. like, I just, I don't think there's good advice to give. Except to, to, like, maybe know your worth. And if you accept a, like pay below that, make, like, a promise to yourself to only do that for a particular amount of time before, like, you feel confident having built up a rapport with your employer, or before Mm. you just go and find another employer and use that as your leverage and be like, I think I'm worth more than this. Yeah, well, I guess here's here's a thing that we could say, because knowing your worth is really hard. I know that when I entered into the workforce, I had zero idea, as you heard before, no idea what I was worth. So, so vastly underestimated what I was worth that my boss actually replied saying, can I give you more money, essentially? <laughs> um, so, so that's hard. And the only way that you can know what you're worth is uh, don't rely too much on internet searches, because <laughs> <laughs> is what I had to say from experience, because they're incredibly location dependent. So most of the data will come from the United States. Um, and what the average worker should be earning in a city versus in a more rural area will be different because your living costs are different. And so the the best thing I can do, uh, the best advice I could give is to essentially ask around your friend group, ask around people you know and trust in the industry uh, that you want to enter into and see what they think you're worth. Ask them what they think you should be asking for as a salary. And also, if you're offered a salary that you're not sure if, um, if it's right or not, uh, a good way to negotiate something higher without actually negotiating a higher salary is to either talk about 
other benefits like going to conferences and like your health plans or whatever or say hey I want a review every six months of my performance where you can have another chance to renegotiate that again um but I, as a disclaimer like I've never tried any of these things these are the things <laughs> that I've just seen floating around and it is really hard as a woman to negotiate a salary but please don't let us discourage you if you are thinking about negotiating if you are thinking about being strong and forthright I think every person knows themselves the best and if you're thinking of doing that if you know you're amped about it then don't let us stop you but also if you're if you're feeling like you shouldn't there's a good reason out there as well so you know to each their own yeah it's hard it's tricky I don't know if you heard about this Sophia but there was some company I have a feeling it was like a fringe hipster tech company to solve the whole pay gap issue between gender race etc etc they just paid everyone in the company including the executive team the same salary yes communism is here and it looks so good and isn't that an interesting idea because if your CEO, if your leadership team is paid the exact same amount as your lowest band of salary, then every single person in the company wants the company to make more money. Yeah, it's the same um, idea behind giving like um, employees equity in a company. It's like because you then you have skin in the game, right? Like you want to be helping the company make money because then you get more money. I think paying everyone the same salary is just like a super extreme version of that and gives me um, a bit of a flashback to when I was trying to explain to a young man at a Christmas party as to why uh, majority democracy wouldn't necessarily work in companies all the time. And he was like, but if everyone got paid the same, it would be great. It's like, <laughs> yes, not the same thing. Yeah. Um, no, that sounds fascinating. If you could find out what company that was, that would be super cool. Yeah, I'll definitely... Oh, that's right. The other thing. All of this we say about like the pay gap and women in the workforce and all of that has rather fascinatingly been confirmed by trans men. Um, and every so often another article will come out being like, turns out trans men exist and they're really fun to talk to. And it's like, well, yes, yes. Um, but essentially, like, an article will either interview a group of trans men or a group of trans men will get together and write something and they'll talk about their lives before they transitioned and after they transitioned mm. in the workplace and often in the same workplace yeah. where they just start get taken more seriously. They get offered promotions. They get invited into conversations. They are in those conversations where they refer to, like, where they sort of, like, shit-talked about the female um, job applicants or hires mm. and that's just like this really awesome like I don't want to refer to trans men as a resource but like their experiences are this incredible resource as to how like we can very clearly see that we treat women and men differently even when they are exactly the same person yeah um and there's been a uh trans guy scientist whose name I'll find at some point um but he said that people would often talk to him and think that his dead name was a sister. Hmm. And they would refer to their work and just be like, oh, your work is much better than your sister's. She wasn't a very good scientist. Oh, my God. And it's just like, yeah. it's the same dude. Same person. Same, same person. 
Oh my gosh. Yeah, um, I don't know any trans men, but I do have a lot of trans women friends, and they have the exact same story. The exact same story. Like, before, after transition. In reverse, yeah. We're treated incredibly differently. Uh, and it's... I mean, on one hand, it's fascinating, but on the other, it's not surprising at all. But to, like, have that evidence so concrete, like, this is literally the same human, and there is a measurable, significant, noticeable difference to how they're treated before and after the transition. It just goes to show that... I don't know, I do think we do like to lull ourselves into a false sense of security and that we think sexism is a thing but it's like subtle now and like we don't you know we're not as bad as we are before and it's it's just like the tiny things that we have to improve on but in some ways it's not subtle at all it's incredibly noticeable and significant and jarring yeah jarring and their testaments just prove that and i think the other thing that um this point to, and uh, I'm speaking particularly about science because, like, that's my field, and I yell about this a lot. <laughs> is that um, I found the name of the scientist? It was Ben Bars, um, and he refers to this exact comment. Ben Bars gave a great seminar today, but his work is much better than his sister's work, and they were referring to him mm. before he transitioned, and they were literally referring to this after his very first seminar, like as a man but it's also like I think rather indicative that the trans people you often see succeeding are white trans men yeah and I think that also reflects like those kind of dynamics we have and that like particularly in science like the visible LGBT role models are trans men or gay men like a lo- almost all of the time like unless you kind of dig deep and find the like oh it turns out in like a dusty tome at the back of the library under like several locked um safes like it turns out this scientist was maybe bisexual like (laughs) it's just men again and that's super frustrating even though like it's awesome for the trans community and i'm really glad that trans men have these role models like it is still really frustrating to see that there's still that incredible disconnect between how we treat men and women so to to move on a little um (laughs) what are something less shitty (laughs) (laughs) what are what are some ways we can solve this like we we brushed on it briefly when we talked about uh negotiation but as we've talked about before that has its uh, ups and downs i think it'd be good to rant on a little bit about what we as a society can do because that's something that, you know, we can talk about more. Um, But also, and this is the hardest one, like what we as individuals can do. And I don't really have a good answer for that individual question. I think something we can do as a society is to really normalise the blinding of applications for things. And this is definitely something Mm. that's only really taken off in the past couple of years, is that applications for awards or for job applications or for scholarships will be blinded. Um... I have a few concerns with this, the first one being that if anyone was to look at my CV, it would be clear that I was, um, if not female passing, a very staunch feminist dude. Uh, (laughs) Actually, no, no, you actually, I went to Tauranga Girls College, what am I saying? Like, it's obvious I'm, like, female passing, assigned female at birth, like, Mm. 
And so I don't think blinding CVs and applications can go the entire way, but I do think they can go a really long way towards like removing that instantaneous bias that we have. Um, I've been reading Hidden Figures, which is the book that the film like sort of mm. drew on really heavily. Um, and one of the things that was done like during, I think particularly wartime, is they used to have a requirement for a photo with a CV. So you could look at someone's CV and know if they were white or black. And mm. then the president of the time signed an executive order that said you no longer needed that. And so while it was super obvious from like the schools that they went to and the um, churches they were involved in and things like that, like who was white and who was black, removing mm. that photograph like just gave this delay where you might be able to catch yourself in a bias. I think that delay can be quite important. Absolutely. It's putting up extra barriers against your bias. What do you think we can do as a society? <laughs> I was going to say something and I've completely blanked. Are you just thinking about hidden figures now? I am, actually. <laughs> oh my god, I I haven't seen it yet. How have you not seen it? We were going to go in New Plymouth and then we missed that because it was like Chinese New Year and it was really busy. And then we were going to go a few Thursdays ago and then something else came up. Oh, it's the worst. Serena, oh my god, pull a sickie and just go to Hidden Figures. <laughs> It'll happen. It'll happen. Like, no, trust me. Like, it's so I know. good. Like, I, I know. I cried so much. I know. <sighs> I know. I love it. <laughs> also, I'm so impressed by like every woman who worked in a time where they got paid less than men or couldn't work while married and every like black person who worked at who like lived and worked at a time where like equality was on its way and like the world mm. is gonna be better and then it just wasn't and I'm just so impressed that they didn't punch literally everyone in the face like yeah yeah it's incredibly disappointing that it didn't get that much better but I think that I mean I'm incredibly thankful that they did work during that time even though it was incredibly hard because now they've gotten us to where we are now and they made really hard steps in the right direction and it's up to us to make those final hard steps oh definitely and I think there's a lot that can be learned by looking to our foremothers and sort of seeing the steps they made and that ongoing relentless push towards change that they made mm. to look to what we need to do as a society to fix it and like I think while it can be disheartening to have pushback so do women getting the right to vote so you know yeah here we I'll take it also another little tangent mm-hmm. um I found out recently that my great 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 grandmother was one of the signers of New Zealand's um petition of suffrage oh cool yeah that's fucking awesome Pamela Strawbridge and my mum sent me like a link to the page that she signed on and so like I saw her signature and that was really exciting turns out I come from a long line of pissed off feminists that's so cool I have I have so much respect for the first wave second wave feminists because they had to put up with a a lot like we have to put up with a lot of shit we know that because we're putting up with it right yeah but they had to put up with so much more shit. And they were out on the streets. They were fighting for their rights. And that's just... 
I was actually talking about this earlier today. Why do you think women got the vote in New Zealand and Australia before, like, a lot of the rest of the world, namely England and the US? I don't know if I can say, because my my knowledge of New Zealand history and my knowledge of world history in general is, is pretty shit, to be honest. Um, well, because, like, New Zealand women got the vote in, what, 1898? Yeah, yeah. So, if I had to take a guess... Um, it would be a similar reason to why we were the test ground for a welfare state. We were the test ground for IFPOS even more recently. Is that we are a small population and it's easier to push through large systemic changes here. That's my guess. Sorry, it was 1893. So earlier than that. And then Australia was like 1902, I think. Mm-hmm. 1902, yeah. Um, and... I was thinking that um, potentially it partly had a basis in New Zealand's very agricultural beginnings and that, like, New Zealand very much in the late 1800s was, like, a farming community, whereas Mm -hmm. you can look at the more industrialised places of the UK, of um, the USA, like... They, had, they already had kind of societal structures in place that were saying, like, women were not equal to men. Women, like, could not do this, could not do that. Whereas in New Zealand, it's like, you come here, you're a farmer. Yeah. Like, in a lot of cases, there aren't enough workers, so women would just kind of, like, do work. Like, and also, um, I certainly, like, I'm not an expert in these kind of matters, but... Yeah, that would be my inclination, is that women sort of historically held almost more equal positions to men in New Zealand than they did in other places that had that, like, um, sociological disenfranchisement of women. Hmm. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. It, um, it seems to me that when, I don't know, when life is a bit harder, when, like, you need to survive in environments and in communities in which survival is paramount. So that includes newly colonised lands, as well as areas of the world, like deserts, where it's really difficult to survive, or in like smaller communities where you don't have as much human resource. The whole gender inequality thing isn't as large, it seems to me. And for some reason, suddenly it's like when we don't need everyone to be working their fullest anymore, you know, make sure the group survives. It's it's one of those cases where it's like, you needed me, and now that you don't need me anymore, fuck you, I got mine, kind of thing. It's really frustrating. I would really like to know, and I'm sure there's, like, experts out there and people who have studied this who would know, so I hope that they or someone they know is listening now, because I really would like to hear some theories of, why New Zealand and Australia were the first to implement the women's vote. I mean, it's because New Zealand's, like, objectively better, right? <laughs> I'd like to think that. Um, I would. <laughs> but quite quite genuinely, like, I have some knowledge about women's suffrage in New Zealand, but it's relatively limited. Like, I mostly know the fact that, like, it wasn't violent, it happened relatively quickly, and mm. my great-great-great-grandmother was involved. Um... So, yeah, if you know about that, if you have research on that topic, if you can expand our world, like, we'd love to hear from you because we're both scientists. Like, what do you want from us? <laughs> we're nerds, but not in that field. <laughs> Look, on that note of us not knowing about the history of women's suffrage and, you know, therefore not knowing about literally our own history, um, 
we will kind of wrap up this conversation on the pay gap because I think we've sort of reached the limits of our knowledge currently and certainly we can go away and research and read and as more articles come out, as more articles always do come out and as our valued listeners send us things and mm. introduce us to people who know more about this than us, um, we might revisit this topic. But I think what we've really covered here today is that firstly, the pay gap exists. Secondly, negotiating is a fucking minefield. <laughs> and finally, that we as a society, still have a way to go. But I think the best guidance and the best strength we can get is from looking at the people that came before us, seeing where they were incorrect, like, for example, the racism, and understanding that we can continue this fight, this movement towards equality for everyone of all genders. Um, and so on that note, thanks for listening. You can find us on Twitter at Casting Interest, and as always, email. We're at castinginterest at gmail.com. Uh, please do let us know what you think. Please do let us know your opinions. Please do introduce us to experts, or yourself, if you are an expert in this area. We would really, really love to know more. I think actually something I've realised at the end of this episode is how little I know about this topic, which mm. is probably a really good place to end any episode. Um, yeah. And I feel like I have a lot to learn now, which is exciting. That is exciting. And as always, if you want to come with us on our everlasting journey of learning, please do recommend us to a friend, um, give us some stars and reviews on the iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, uh, stay interesting. <laughs>